1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 to the end of the letter, Paul is describing here what church should be like. Not as a building, but the redeemed community of God's people. What's our culture to uh, emulate? Now, we can all learn from the past. Uh, I'm a great believer in church history, and my favorite period, as you can gather, is probably the start of the 19th century in Welsh church history, the golden age of preaching, uh, the time when there was a major revival every 10 years, and if there wasn't a revival after a decade, uh, people would seek the Lord in prayer. But we're not to go back to the start of the 19th century, right? We're not to go back to the 1960s, 1970s, when some of you saw blessing here. Maybe for others, the Puritans uh, was the high point of the church, and we can learn a lot from them. We're not to go back to the Puritans. We are to go back to the New Testament, New Testament Christianity. We can still have our different traditions. We'd be foolish to say uh, that we can't have traditions because every church has them. Even the most non-traditional have ways of doing things. But the essence of the culture of the church is what is taught in the Bible. And here, we've just got these lovely uh, exhortations. There's no logic here. It's just one exhortation after another, just telling us, uh, commanding us even, what we're to be like. So Paul started by commanding us in terms of our relationship to the leadership. Every church has a leadership. It doesn't matter what the model is. You cannot function without leaders. It doesn't mean that pastors and elders are above the people. We're all equal, but God has given leaders. He's given parents. He's given uh, employers. He's given uh, governments, etc. So that's the first thing. We're to highly esteem them. And then he goes on, uh, verse 14, which is where we were last time we were in Thessalonians in 2023. Uh, he talks about our duties towards one another. And what I want to do this evening, I'm not going to preach a whole sermon. I want to finish what we were looking at last time and didn't get to finish. So our responsibility to one another. So it's not just the pastor and elders who are to look after the flock. In one sense, we're all involved, aren't we? We're all to look out to one another and to pastor one another. So we've looked at that in verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, Paul is referring to certain vulnerable people, Warn those who are unruly, those who don't walk the line. They need to be kept in line. Comfort the faint-hearted. Uh, there are those who have the sorrows of the mind. We're not to be down on them like a ton of bricks. We're to be uh, tender with them. Uh, uphold the weak. 
So those are the responsibilities we have towards certain vulnerable people. Every congregation will have vulnerable people. The church is to be a place of refuge for such people. But now I want to finish the message. I didn't quite get to finish last time we were in this letter. We want to look at our responsibility to everybody, right? So that's the first thing we'll do. We'll finish what we were looking at last time here. And then we'll start, but we won't be able to finish, (laughs) the next section. So I hope you can follow that. And I'm keeping an eye on the clock as we do that, because we do want to hear uh, Peter and Geraint in the after meeting. So what are our responsibilities to everybody? Well, the first one is the end of verse 14. Be patient with who? Those who are easy to get on with? Well, of course. But be patient with all. Be patient with all. Don't you like the word in the authorised version, long-suffering? Isn't that a good word? It explains itself, doesn't it? That's what it means to be patient with all. You suffer long. Now, some people, uh, they uh, are easy to bear with. Uh, But others, my, you really do need to suffer long. Uh, We know of the Christian who was praying to the Lord, Lord, please give me more patience. And the Lord spoke to him with the words from Romans 5, tribulation worketh patience. And the man thought, oh no, oh no. This is often how the Lord causes our patience to grow. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's not something that comes naturally to us. And he, in his providence, allows difficulties to come. And it's not just difficult circumstances, but in the context of the verse tonight, difficult people. And so they come across our path. And they come to the church, maybe. And we are exercising this grace of long-suffering. Let me quote what Paul wrote to the Colossians. Incidentally, 1 Thessalonians is one of the earliest letters that Paul wrote. So you've got an embryo form here. What he later develops in a fuller form in his other letters. So Colossians 3 puts it like this. Uh, Colossians 3 verse 12 He says, those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, all these lovely graces of the Spirit, gentleness, and here it is, patience. What does that mean in practice? Bearing with one another. And forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so oh, so should you do. It's not easy, is it? But if we're looking to Jesus Christ, and if we think, he's been patient with me, he's still patient with me. At the start of a new year, do you make New Year's resolutions? We're not thinking now of not eating chocolates and things like that. But do you make serious New Year's resolutions. I want to walk closer with the Lord. I want to emulate more 
of my Saviour's attitudes to those round about me. Well, we've already broken them, haven't we? Quite right. We've already broken them. This is how John Newton uh, prayed. Could we bear from one another what he, the Saviour, daily bears from us? Yet this glorious friend and brother loves us, though we tried him thus. Though for good we render ill, he accounts us brethren still. Pray that Jesus Christ would fill your heart with his long-suffering. This is not a temperamental matter. Now, after preaching on this, you will be sure to have somebody this week that will exercise your patience. So, rather than get irritable, as you will, as I will be prone to do, uh, just pray, Lord, help me, help me. Uh, As one person puts it, Be kind to people you meet because you do not know what struggles they may be having. That wasn't a Puritan, that was Robin Williams. But it's a good quote, isn't it? It's a good quote. And then the next responsibility we have, verse 15, this goes beyond patience. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. What does that mean? Negatively, it means don't repay evil with evil. Again, this doesn't come naturally to us. A church is a body of people who have been saved, but we are still in the flesh. We're still saved sinners. So there are bound to be things that will cause tensions. And even disregarding that, We have all got different temperaments and some personalities will rub each other up the wrong way. I'm not looking at anybody, right? I can't see absolutely clearly without my glasses anyway, so you don't need to worry. So what Paul is saying is if you feel you've been ill-treated, don't say, I've got to get that person back. Well, we put it spiritually, don't we? Don't uh, be in a huff with people. It's not easy. Now, let me say what this doesn't mean. Because Paul started in verse 14 talking about leadership. I used to be a school teacher. And I was given advice before I uh, went to the school as a teacher. And I taught up in the Rumney Valley. So it was good advice. The elder in the Welsh church here where I worshipped, who was also a teacher, he was a deputy head teacher in Reedvelen, and he told me, now then, he said, you must make sure that you are strict. Uh, You don't, when you're a school teacher in front of a group of unruly children, you don't say to them, I'm going to turn the other cheek. You don't. As a teacher, or as an employer, or as pastors and elders, we have a responsibility to keep some order, if you understand that. As parents, 
So when Paul is saying here, see that no one renders evil for evil, it cannot mean that if we have a position of responsibility, we've got to turn a blind eye to wrong behavior. Right? It can't mean that. Neither can it mean, I remember a friend saying to me, he believed in turning the other cheek when it was personal insult, but he said, if I saw people attacking another person, I wouldn't say to them, I'm going to turn the other cheek to you. I would go in there and I would try and defend the other person. But the key here is if somebody personally insults us or offends us, we don't retaliate. We seek to turn the other cheek. It's personal insults, uh, not if we have a responsibility. Sometimes we blur that line. But then it's much more positive than that, isn't it? Look at the way Paul puts it. And I want to emphasize one word in particular. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. So instead of trying to pay them back, always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. That means turning the other cheek. That's the metaphor for what you have here. If somebody, as it were, mistreats us and we run a mile, then run the extra mile. If somebody steals your cloak from you, you don't try to retaliate. You give them the other cloak. That's grace, isn't it? That's got to be abundant grace. Uh, there was an American president, not recently. Uh, it shows how far the presidency has gone uh, from godliness. Uh, many, many decades ago, it was said of this person that if you offended him, personal insults now, he would go out of his way to try and reconcile himself to you. That's a good example, a really good example. Now, the word I want you to concentrate on here is pursue what is good. In the original, in the Greek, uh, this means pursue vigorously, like that president. I can't remember his name now but pursue vigorously. Do you know what the word is in another context? The man writing this is the Apostle Paul. What was Paul before he was converted? He was Saul of Tarsus. What was he? He was Saul the persecutor. And it's exactly the same word in the Greek for pursue vigorously and persecute. So what Paul is saying here, whereas once I was vigorously going after those believers, now the grace of God in Jesus Christ has transformed me and I'm just as vigorous in trying to do them good. Can you see what grace does? Grace changes the direction of our motivations. Let the Lord Jesus Christ speak. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. Peter, who witnessed Jesus Christ firsthand, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges rightlessly. Do you know what people see? Do you know what people see? We live in a postmodern age. But do you know what people are looking for today? Do you know what, what, what they're 
hungering and thirsting for authenticity, reality. If people see churches who talk the talk, who say wonderful spiritual things, but who don't walk the walk, they're not interested, and you can't blame them. But if they see people who are real, then it draws them, doesn't it? And no wonder it was said of the early church, see how they love one another. The power of love. I know it's a song, but spiritually there is power in uh, Christian love, Philadelphia love. So that's the comments I wanted to say to finish uh, the last sermon, our duties to one another. So let's proceed now to the next section. And it starts in verse 16, and it goes all the way down to verse 22. And then after verse 22, there's a benediction and then just personal greetings. But we're going to take a few Sundays looking at verse 16 to 22. What you've got here is instructions, even exhortations, to the church now in terms of the worship, the gathering of the church to worship. What do you notice about these exhortations? They're like bullets, aren't they? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, quench not the Spirit, despise not prophesyings, etc. Uh, some uh, person has described them as headings in a church service. What should our church services be like? Well, here, Paul is giving us headings. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. What I find very interesting here is that these commands can be taken on a personal level, but Paul here is writing corporately as well. So he's thinking of the people of God when they're together. Uh, so uh, let me just mention uh, a few things here. The verbs are plural verbs. And then you've got the mention of prophecy, haven't you? Uh, verse 20, do not despise prophecies. Now, prophecy is done in a public context. It's a message from God to the people. And then there is uh, the mention of the holy kiss. Uh, the holy kiss uh, was a public greeting in New Testament times. Uh, there are different interpretations of that today. We'll come to that by and by. And then Paul says about this letter that he's writing, verse 27, I charge you by the Lord that this letter be read to all. So he's talking about the whole congregation. So even though we can take these different commands at a personal level, he's addressing the whole congregation. And then there is something else here that I find very significant. What he doesn't say about worship that we have very strong views on. I'm careful here now, right? But Paul doesn't mention whether you should use, well, they didn't have books in his day, whether you should use scrolls for singing, or I don't know, what, what would the alternative be? <laughs> he doesn't mention what you should wear to come to the services. That's another hot potato, isn't it, in our day? There's no mention here of that. There's no mention of how many times 
we should have our services. There's no mention of how long they should be. Now, if we take other New Testament scriptures, we do know that the early church met on the first day of the week, not the Jewish Sabbath anymore, but the first day, the day of the Lord, the day he rose from the dead, inaugurating the new creation. We do know what they did when they met. They sang God's praises. They prayed. They heard the word of God read. They had it open to them. There was preaching. There would have been baptisms quite frequently. There would have been the Lord's Supper. There would have been a collection. But nothing else is said about what they did when they gathered together. They probably would have met on the evening of the first day of the week because many of the members of the early church were slaves and they would have been working in their different households during the day. So what I'm trying to say is this. The things that we count as important uh, in terms of worship and we often argue about and spend a great deal of time and energy over, there is very little in the New Testament on those things. And the things that the Word concentrates on are the vital things. Now, I want to go a step further here. I want to ask the question, what is the purpose of the church? What, what is the primary raison d'etre of the church? Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm about to say. It is not evangelism. The church is here to evangelize with every fiber of my being. I believe in evangelism. I believe in preaching the gospel on a Sunday. I believe in taking the gospel out. I'm 100% for uh, the new initiatives we have been doing. I think God is blessing those. But the primary purpose of the church isn't evangelism. It's vital to evangelize. But why are people saved? People are saved to worship. And there won't be any evangelism in heaven. There won't be any preaching in heaven. What's the purpose of the church? The main purpose of the church isn't to serve. Now again, ministry, service, is absolutely essential when it comes to the church. But it's not the raison d'etre. Why do we serve? We don't serve for its own sake. We serve to worship, don't we? We are saved. What did Jesus Christ say of salvation? This is eternal life, that they might know thee and him whom thou hast sent. This is Warren Wearsby. Listen to this. Worship is the most important activity of a local church family. Ministry must flow, whether it's evangelism, whether it's pastoral, whatever it is, whether it's the coffee shop, doesn't matter what it is. Ministry must flow out of worship. Otherwise, it becomes busy activity without power and without hearts. Now listen to this. Many church services 
lack an emphasis on true worship. And we are little religious clubs with entertainment, either catering for modern tastes or catering for more traditional tastes. None of that is true worship. We are first and foremostly here to worship the triune God, to come to the Father through Jesus the Son in the Spirit and give him the glory, great things he hath done. We don't keep this to ourselves. We tell out this good news. That's evangelism. And that's not just something done from the pulpit. It's not even something uh, limited to the outreach activities of the church. It's something we are. You are witnesses to me. And then when people hear the gospel and God saves them, what do they become? They become worshippers then. And there is nothing better to stimulate worship from my experience than the gospel going out in power and people being saved. We know a little bit of that, don't we? In a prayer meeting, if there's a new convert in the prayer meeting and maybe the prayers are heavy, 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 and then the new converts get up and maybe they don't know the religious jargon, maybe it's all broken sentences, but my, it lifts the meeting. Worship. Thank God for an evangelical church. I wouldn't want it any other way. Thank God for a church that serves. Some of you work so tirelessly. But in the end, what drives everything is love towards God in Christ. And we are here to worship him. Now let's look very briefly, because we're going to have next Sunday evening, God willing, to look at this in greater detail, the first heading of the church worship service, two words, verse 16, rejoice always. What, what does uh, one translation say? Rejoice evermore? I don't know if we're going to have a Bible verse this year going out on paper, because everything is electronic now. But this is going to be our Bible verse. Do you need it on paper? Remember it. Two words. Rejoice. Always. Or if you prefer the old English, rejoice. Always. And may it not just be remembered by us, but may it be written not on paper, but on our hearts. Now, this is the missing jewel, according to Tozer in the modern evangelical church. Isn't it sad that rejoicing, which is the element of worship that has been most uh, discussed, uh, most uh, disagreed over, isn't it sad that something so glorious should have become a controversial subject? You know, we won't be evangelizing in heaven, but we will be rejoicing. Don't you want to become a rejoicer? That's what we're going to look at, God willing, uh, next Sunday. And we might need another sermon on it as well. 
It's not often said of our Reformed Evangelical churches that they are placing an emphasis on rejoicing. Uh, you have Paul writing to Philippians. Do you know the end of Philippians 4? What does he say? Be doer in the Lord. And again I say, be doer. The Reformed look. Oh, rejoice in the Lord. And again I say, rejoice. And we need reminding, don't we? Rejoice always. We won't have time to go any further this evening, but may we be a church. Whatever else we may be doing, firstly and foremostly, we'll be worshipping the triune God. And from that, everything else will flow. Our evangelism, our serving, and let's start encouraging ourselves to be those who rejoice in the Lord. Uh, it was the hymn that John Wesley quoted from with his dying breath. Uh, he, do, do, you, do you, this sounds macabre, right? But do you like reading uh, about deathbed scenes? Uh, um, I was given a book by somebody uh, because they knew I enjoyed reading people's last words. So they gave me a book about it. And I, I find John Wesley's deathbed so encouraging because his strength is ebbing away and he knows he's about to go home. And he just quotes, I'll pray. He quotes Isaac Watts. That's good, isn't it? John Wesley quoting another hymn writer. I'll praise my maker while I've breath. And when my voice is lost in death, praise shall employ my nobler powers. No more going on horseback, preaching the gospel thousands and thousands and thousands of miles. But my days of praise shall ne'er be past, while life and thoughts and being last, or immortality endures. So we're going to sing it now. It's number 11, and it's based on the psalm that we opened the service with, Psalm 146. So number 11, happy the man and woman and child whose hopes rely on Israel's God. He made the sky and earth and seas with all their train his truth forever stands secure he saves the oppressed he feeds the poor and none shall find his promise vain number 11 
So, Father in heaven, we pray that we would indeed rejoice evermore and make us, oh God, as a people uh, that know what it is uh, to rejoice in the Lord, in the Spirit. Uh, Father, we are grateful for being a church that is preaching the gospel and seeking to be a lifeboat station. And Lord, we don't want to lose that edge in any way whatsoever. But, but Father, uh, help us uh, that when people uh, are reached and when they are saved, that they will find here a community that is vibrant in worshipping the triune God. Oh, Lord our God, uh, we feel like we're beginners in these things. And help us, even in a controversial subject, to just exert our noblest powers in worshipping uh, thee. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.